Well, this summer we are spending some time in some of Jesus' parables in the Gospel of Luke. And we started last week in this series with the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it gives us the title for our series, which is Who is My Neighbor? I believe that all of these parables really have us work with that question in some ways of, of our neighbor and how we, how we become neighbors, if you will, to one another. The parables do a lot of things as uh, they are used in the Gospels, but I want us to look at them in terms of the questions that they raise and the admonitions that they give and the explorations that they make regarding this theme of our relatedness to one another and to God. And so that's how we're looking at them. This call to be neighbor to one another that is in the parable of the Good Samaritan where Jesus changes the question from who is my neighbor to how can I be a neighbor or show myself to be neighbor to the other. And today we're looking at what is called the parable of the rich fool. And let's look at that together in Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Friend, who set me up to be a judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then Jesus told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, ah, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Let's pray. Help us to hear your invitation to us today, Lord, to seek the things that are of ultimate value. To understand our lives in that context. And to so live into those reasons that you created us and to find that rest that we seek in the midst of a very restless world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I'm reading through these parables in preparation for these sermons, I'm aware of how easy it is to make them all kind of slow, easy pitches to hit. They have some obvious sort of moral implications, almost all of them do, and you know, you, you can take that and preach it and everyone can be on their way, not being challenged very much, but 
it's true. It's just as my theology professor used to say, true, but not very adequate. <laughs> it's easy to preach them in that way of making them into moralistic fables that define good and bad, right and wrong, nice guy and bad guy. All of them in some ways having therefore the same message that it's good to be good and nice to be nice. And that's just really a rich truth to go home with every Sunday, isn't it? Today, the, the lesson would be, don't be like that rich guy who thinks only of money. Don't be greedy. So let's sing our last hymn and be on our way. <laughs> They're not moralistic lessons so much as they are an invitation to reflection. And often that invitation to reflection is not as obvious as we think. But what Jesus does with these parables is he widens the angle. He zooms out. He gets us to look at the bigger picture and then gets us to ask the question, how do I fit in that picture? Where am I in this parable? If we read them that way, they can't help but grab a hold of our heart in some way as we begin to see our reflection in them. And what parts of the characters in the parable are, are in me. They're kind of like a Rorschach inkblot in that way. And I don't know whether any of you have ever had the privilege of having a psychological exam where they hold up the inkblots and they ask you to, what does that look like to you? And the thing about this is that those inkblots are really about what you put into them more than what they really are. I remember I had a career psychological assessment when I was about 27. I had been three years into ministry. I had just come through a, a kind of pretty major surgery because they had discovered this irregularity in my urinary tract. I had been putting pressure on my kidneys. And so they went through the Rorschach inkblot test with me. And I swear, almost every single one of those inkblots looked like kidney x-rays to me. <laughs> And then when I read the psychologist's report, it was very fun to read, some residual concern about recent surgery. <laughs> the situations that occasion these stories are pretty important as we read the parables. Just having the story is not even half as important as whose question and what question occasions the story that Jesus tells. And the situation that occasions this story is a person who wants justice, a brother of some elder brother, no doubt, who is desiring a more rapid division and distribution of the inheritance. And Jesus' initial reply to him is really, zoom out. Let's step back. Let's take another look at a picture bigger than the one that you're thinking about and bigger than the one into which your claim fits. And he starts out by saying, first of all, I'm not the judge here. So you can ask this question, but I, I have no role in the adjudication of this matter. I'm not the judge or the divider in this dispute. I'm not the ultimate decider. It is not my circus and not my monkeys. So 
don't ask me to do what you're asking me to do. But let me keep going, because there's something else I want to discuss with you. Here's what I'm here to do. I'm not here to be your judge, but I'm here to draw your awareness to things that you might not otherwise look at. I'm here to point you into the bigger context into which your claim fits. And there's something bigger and something more important than your claim. So take note, step back, be careful. And Jesus kind of spills the beans of the moral of the story before he even tells it. He says, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So we already know what the thesis is going to be, what the, the story is going to be about. And Jesus says, life's about something more. So step back and let's look at that something more that life is about. And then he tells the story. And he starts out pretty much with a line that's nothing more and nothing less than, there was this rich guy who was getting richer. Now, how many of us would think, oh, that's me? <laughs> Not many of us. There was this rich guy who was getting richer. There was this rich guy who kept making money off of this fertile land that he owned, and it just was producing crops like crazy. He didn't have to do much to make that happen. And so he had a dilemma. He had too much. He had more than enough. What's he going to do with it? So in some ways, that's an invitation to tune out. And he's saying, you know, he's not really talking about me. He's talking about all the people who are greedy. <laughs> so anyway, uh, you missed the irony of that. Um, <laughs> I just have this rich brother who's being stingy with me is what this guy is saying. And this story must be for someone else. And so this man, this wealthy man thought to himself, Jesus goes on with the story, thought to himself, what should I do? What shall I do? He thought to himself, what shall I do? Well, I will pull down my barns and I will build larger ones and I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say then to my soul, soul, you have ample goods, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And the accompanying song in the background is George Harrison, I, me, mine. I, I, me, me, mine. You know, I, it's like all through the day, I, me, mine, I, me, mine. All through the night, I, me, mine, I, me, mine. Now they're frightened of leaving it. Everyone's weaving it. Coming on strong all the time, all through the day, I, me, mine. Obviously, the man is focused on and having conversation with no one but himself. And suddenly the angle widens. Because it's not a story about a rich guy getting richer, it's a story about isolation. It's a story about the absence of any concern bigger than himself or any relationship that might govern that concern. He's one who has nothing but his money and himself, someone who thinks he needs only money, and one who makes money the issue and lets it divide and isolate and pretty much alienate himself from others. And suddenly, the complainant 
is the object of the story. Suddenly, the plaintiff is the defendant because the camera zooms out again. And there's a universal message that applies to both parties in the action, a, a fate that will befall both of them. Because at the end of the story, Jesus says, fool. Today, your soul is demanded of you. And that's what unites the complainant and the defendant. What unites the complainant and the defendant is death. Because it's something that both of them will have to go through. The camera zooms out and that universal message that applies to both parties of the action is that fate that will befall them both, death, you fool this night, your soul is demanded of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? The question isn't just about the things, but more importantly, into whose hands will the things fall? And suddenly we're all in the frame. Suddenly all of us are in this picture having to figure out whether or not that ink blot arouses something in us. This is a story that's about all of us because it's a story about death. It's a story about the great leveler of humanity, the fate, the truth that all of us will experience, the fact that gets us all thinking about what we value most in life and how we spend our time and in what we will invest. Nothing can do that better than the fact of our death. You know, when we come to every single Ash Wednesday, the thing we hear as the ashes are put on our forehead is you have come from the dust and to dust you will return. A lot of times we want to turn Ash Wednesday into some sort of groveling about our sin and some sort of woe-begone attitude about how bad we are and how much we need the blood of Jesus in order to get beyond that. But that's really not the point of Ash Wednesday. The point of Ash Wednesday is not me laboring over my sin. The point of Ash Wednesday is me admitting that I'm going to die. And am I connected to something that's bigger than me because I will cease to be? Death is the great leveler. It gets us to think about how we're going to spend our time and in what we're going to invest. And so Jesus is essentially saying, so go ahead, make money the issue. Let your decisions about your portfolio be at the core of what you do. Isolate, protect, and secure your holdings. But what will become of those things when you die? It's an illustration, really, of the line from the 49th Psalm, where the psalmist says, When we look at the wise, they die. Fool and dolt perish together and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they named lands their own. And this is the line. Mortals cannot abide in their pomp. They are like the animals that perish. And at the end of the parable, 
What we have really is a situation where everybody's in the frame. The camera has widened its angle to the point that we're all there in the frame because death is the fact that we all have to face. And the real question is not how much we have, but whose will it be? <laughs> because there will come a time when we won't hold it. And the question is not how much or how much is enough, but the question is about relationships and the extent to which we value them or we don't. In real estate, they say that the primary law is location, location, location. In biblical studies, I would build on that kind of content and say the primary law in biblical studies is context, context, context. There's nothing more vile and funnier than the Bible taken out of context. It can be used as this lovely battering ram on the one hand when you do that, or it, it can be kind of a little bit head scratching and, and weird, quite frankly. But context is very important in reading the Bible and Luke's placement of material, his sayings of Jesus that follow this story are very interesting. He doesn't like Matthew does include it all in one body of information in the Sermon on the Mount, because that's where Matthew puts this material. But Luke puts this material right after the story of the rich fool. And if we're to repeat that passage from Luke, Jesus ends that text with, do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The size and the profitability of our portfolio is not the main issue in life. The main issue in life is not our treasure. That is the treasure that we accumulate. The one who dies with the most toys doesn't win. The one who dies with the most toys dies. And that one is just as dead as the one who doesn't have any toys. The main issue is not our treasure, but as Jesus tells us here, the main issue is that we are treasured by God. Psalm 30, verse 12, that Kristen read for us a little earlier, says it well. The psalmist, in having faced death in a sickness, says, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. But you had established me as a strong mountain. You hid your face and I was dismayed. God is not one of the assets in our portfolio. God is not an object that we keep in our safe for a better life. We are God's treasure. God has us in his safe and his relationship with us is what gives us value. 
When we know this, we begin to see and value the others whom God treasures, otherwise known as our neighbors. And we begin to love in the same way that we have ourselves been loved. So as Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to grant you the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, take us beyond the limits of our own imaginations and those frantic quests to have enough. And instead, let us rest in the truth that there's nothing that can separate us from your love and then receive and give lavishly because you have given lavishly to us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.